Good morning, Crosspoint. How are you? Welcome to the second of three services. If you don't like crowded rooms, we also have an 8 a.m. service that is more lightly attended. We've got a good little group of people that come out at 8 a.m., including this morning a high school student from Newport Beach. And I was just so impressed to be a high school student and wake up in Newport Beach, California and make it to church on time at 8 a.m. in Huntington Beach, California. It can be done, folks. You can be to church on time. Whichever service you attend, 8, 9, 30, or 11, welcome. We're always glad that you're here. Let me give you a warning about this sermon. You're likely to be tempted to think that it's about somebody else. There's a danger there. Anytime the Bible is taught, particularly the words of Jesus, that some will think the message is really appropriate for the person sitting next to you. Someday I'm going to make good on the threat and wear a GoPro on my head so that you can see what I can see on Sunday mornings. Sometimes when the biblical truth lands, people elbow each other. Did you hear that? You need to pay attention to that. Don't start any fights. Just listen to Jesus for yourself this morning. The reason that's necessary is because this message is one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said. It's as crystal clear as a diamond, but it's also just as hard. What he said is actually, I don't think, very controversial. But it's so hard to put into practice that even Bible scholars, as I looked at various Bible scholars and they're dealing with this, uh, with this passage, when it came to the main point a particular verse, one Bible study, one study Bible just left that space open and kept moving forward. Don't know why, I wasn't consulted, none of my business. But if you take Jesus seriously, if you take Jesus at His word, it'll change your life. So my invitation to you is not to explain away why what He said doesn't apply to you. To not weaken it. Because the teaching this morning is a parable. If you'll open your Bibles with me, let me show you what Jesus is working toward in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, please. In Matthew 18, Jesus is dealing unequivocally with His disciples. Jesus has warm, wonderful sayings that are a tremendous blessing that people find rest in, that a child can understand and find peace in. Other sayings like this, hard, clear, direct. And in this case, He's straightening up His disciples. In Matthew chapter 18, they come to Him with what turns out to be, based on all of their collective behavior, you can read about in the Gospels, a pretty petty question. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Even at the Last Supper, we're told, they argued among themselves who would be the greatest in this new kingdom, this new life that Jesus was inaugurating even then that is not yet fully here, but the King is on the earth. The Son of God has been sent. Eternal life is available and already begun. And those closest to Him are arguing about the org chart. Jesus, who's really great in your kingdom when you pass out the assignments, who's going to be the best and the greatest among us? 
The answer should have brought them up short, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you don't have the simple trust of a child, if you don't renounce your doubts and put your trust simply in Jesus and the Father who sent Him, you won't even be in the kingdom at all, never mind who's the greatest in it. That was just the beginning. He continued to teach them. In verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to be, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And then he goes on to say, if your hand or your foot is cause for you to sin and keep you out of the kingdom, you would be better cutting them off. It would be better, here's the punchline, it would be better, Jesus says in verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Wow. Jesus says eternal life matters so much that if your eye is what's keeping you from eternal life, better to be blind in one eye, better to be maimed and go to heaven, have eternal life, than to enjoy perfect, robust health your entire life and be thrown into hell. Like I told you, this is hard stuff. I volunteered as a law enforcement chaplain for a good number of years now, and one of the fascinating things to me about that environment, when it's a code three call, in other words, when it's, emergence, when it's an emergency, clarity takes over. Extraneous words are left aside. Politeness tends to disappear. There's no rudeness. There's just very quick, clear communication because lives are on the line. This matters so much more than that. What Jesus is teaching all across Matthew 18 is the difference not between earthly life and death, but between eternal life and death. That's why he's saying these things. He goes on to tell them the parable of the lost sheep that these little ones who have been sinned against, who might be lost, matter so much to God that God is the kind of God who pursues one lost one and leaves 99 safely at home so that He can bring the lost one back. In other words, and I'm coming to the parable, I want you to see this is all about ordering life among fellow believers about ordering the life among disciples of Jesus, about ordering specifically the life in a local church like ours, which should be the safest, most loving place in the world. And every time it's not, we deny and defy Jesus. What Jesus is going to talk about now is reconciling these relationships that are so obviously tense between His disciples that lead them in a competitive fashion to ask, who do you think among us is doing the best? Because Peter, Peter says he's kind of the guy. He's always out in front. He's always, and John says that if we notice, he's always physically closer to you in the big moments. And we've noticed you have three guys that you retreat with sometimes, and you take them places and tell them things that the rest of us don't hear. How's the org chart? 
That kind of pettiness, that kind of competitiveness is part of life, but it should not be part of the life of the disciples. That's why Jesus is ordering their relationships. And now we come to the parable. In Matthew 18, he begins to get to the heart of the matter. I want you to hear this with me. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, an unbeliever. Jesus is deadly serious about relationships among us being settled, peaceful, loving. If we really are in the kingdom of God, we're characterized not by strife and competition, but by humility, love, and mutual forgiveness. And the blessing of this church, at least in this season, is that we have enjoyed exactly that life for quite a long time, but there are always offenses, there are always resentments, there are always differences, there are always arguments. And Jesus would tell us in the parable that follows, after telling them all this, that to be in the kingdom of God at all, you have to have the humble heart of the child. That a person who makes one of those simple believers stumbled would be better off if he actually had a rock thrown or tied around his neck and thrown into the ocean. That everything he's talking about is so important that it would be better to go to heaven blind or maimed rather than to live healthily on earth and be lost. That God and his angels care deeply about the life of every believer, so much so that God will pursue the one who is lost and bring him safely back to the fold. And that while we await Christ in the local church, we are to pursue with love, reconciliation, and peace among us, involving as many people as necessary, escalating only if necessary so that there is peace between us. Because, he warns, an unforgiving heart can safely be considered someone who doesn't know God at all. And that leads to the parable. All of that is the teaching, and Peter, at least, has been listening carefully because in verse 21... He comes with a question. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And here's the backdrop. Peter's trying really hard to be generous. Rabbinical teaching said that if a person continually gave offense, you owed them forgiveness three times but no more. The fourth time you could safely walk away from them and extend no more forgiveness. Peter has grown up with this tradition. He knows this teaching. He hears all of this teaching about the insistence, the importance, the vitality. It's heaven and hell on the line. It's grown men becoming like little children. It's an entire church pursuing one individual to bring them back into loving relationship with the person that, to whom they've given offense. It's that big of a deal. So Peter imagines in his forgiving heart the height of forgiveness and says, Jesus, if the guy keeps doing it, how many times do I forgive him? Seven times? And it's, I mean, it's double what the rabbis taught, plus a bonus. It's a Peter's dozen, if you will, okay? 
double the amount and one more, surely that's good enough, right? He might have wanted a little credit. Jesus, you know how we get along, you know how these guys are, but this one guy keeps doing it. Forgive him seven times? Does that seem to make sense of what you've taught us? Have I understood you correctly? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some of your Bibles will say 70, what's it say? Times seven. That Greek phrase could be translated either way. And let me tell you, if you're trying to figure out whether it should be 77 or 490, you're asking the wrong question. What Jesus is saying is very obvious. You, Peter, think you have been more than generous in your forgiveness. I say forget about counting. If you're keeping count and you're keeping score, you've missed my teaching entirely. And then he told them this parable. And this is where we need to pay careful attention and sit with Jesus carefully and listen to him and believe him and put it into practice rather than try to explain it away. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, in other words, this eternal life that God is inaugurating, that is already coming in but not yet fulfilled, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And that doesn't make much sense to you, but that's an unimaginably large amount of money. In present-day terms, for a working-class job, it's billions of dollars. It's literally, according to one scholar I read, 10,000 was the largest number that the Greek language had a specific name for at that time. In other words, the point is not the amount. The point of the parable is to tell you that when the king began to settle up and call his servants to account, one somehow had developed a debt so large that it could never be repaid. Not in many generations could this man under the authority of the king ever hope to repay him. I'll give you a reading tip about parables. Parables are like jokes. They have a twist at the end, a surprising point that slams into you, and that's the lesson. Don't try to make an entire theology out of any parable. It's not the way parables are supposed to work. They're supposed to deliver one truth at maximum velocity, and if you'll take that truth and not explain it away or say why it doesn't apply to you, you will have heard and obeyed Jesus well, and according to Him, you will have begun to build your life on His teaching, which will save you. When He began to settle, one was brought to Him who owed Him 10,000 talents, and since He could not pay, obviously, His master ordered Him to be sold with His wife and children and all that He had and payment to be made. That's how bankruptcy worked in the ancient world. If you were behind on your bills and you could not repay when all other negotiations fell, you were sold or you sold yourself into slavery. You earned money. Those wages were garnished and taken from you. And someday, somehow, perhaps the debt would be settled. This man knows he's doomed. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Do you believe him? 
No, of course not. He's desperate. He's pleading. He's making promises he cannot keep because he knows he has a debt he cannot pay. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Put yourself in the parable. How would you feel? If somehow you would manage to run up a $100 million bill and they said to you, pay today or we'll take everything you have and you'll never work again. No one in this society is going to trust you with work again. And then out of pure pity, your creditor said, you know what? Forget about it. It's canceled. Writing it off the books. How would you feel? the relief would be unimaginable. Surely tears came to his eyes as he was still on his knees. Surely he danced out of that place as soon as the king could no longer see him. Probably he backed out of the room, scraping and bowing and endlessly thanking him. And then when the king could no longer see him, he turned and ran and jumped and sang for joy. That's what should have happened. And that's the picture that's being painted here. Obviously, the great king is God himself, and the man before the king has all of us a debt that we cannot possibly repay called sin. It's not where the parable's going. When that same servant went out, I'm in verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, now, that's a hundred days of wages. That's a substantial debt, but that's a payable debt. That's a normal debt among people. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, mark the words, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. Here's Jesus explaining his own parable. Don't miss it. Don't explain it away. Just sit with it. Take it to heart. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Did you ever notice verse 35 before? It's pretty heavy. It's Jesus explaining his own parable. If you've missed the point of the parable, if you're new to church, if you're from a different religion or faith tradition, here's the parable that would have immediately been pressed on the hearts of these men who have been following Jesus for years. The king is God himself. All of his servants owe him an account. And this first man has a debt so great that he cannot ever possibly repay it. 
He is beyond help and beyond hope unless he receives mercy. And he pleads in vain that he will not, that he will do what he obviously cannot do, that he will repay it. And so it is with every religion in the world that is trying to make things right with God through our own efforts. And Jesus would have you see in the parable that the king cannot be satisfied by the man's efforts. The debt is too great. And what forgave this man his debt, what granted him, at least in the parable, momentarily his freedom, is the king's great mercy. That is the gospel story. That God, seeing us with the debt we could not possibly repay, sent his son to pay it in our place, and he welcomes us back so long as we trust him and him alone for mercy and forgiveness. That's the gospel story. That's the point of the entire Bible. That specifically is the teaching and the claim of Jesus, that he alone can forgive our sins and welcome us into the kingdom of God, which he has already begun to inaugurate with his arrival on earth. It's not yet fulfilled, but the kingdom of God is within us, and the kingdom of God will be established when Jesus finishes his good work of setting all things right on the earth. But we've been forgiven at great cost. We had a debt we could not possibly repay that was paid freely by the love and mercy of another. That's the gospel story. This parable is aimed, don't miss it, at disciples. It's followers of Jesus who are arguing among themselves about who the greatest will be. It is they who need to be reminded how to get their relationships back in order and what it means for us to forgive one another. The punch at the end of this parable is astonishing. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The point of the parable, simply this, people who have been greatly forgiven should be great forgivers. That people who look at the cross of Christ and see their sins being paid for by Jesus there should not leave the cross and strangle their fellow believer over trivial offenses that will only matter on this earth. It wants this parable to open us up or open our eyes again to the enormity of our debt and the greatness of the King's mercy in extending forgiveness to us. And this teaching, shocking as it is, with that punch from the parable is actually found all across the New Testament telling Christians how to live with one another. Listen to Paul's writings to one of the first Christian churches in Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, we can read this together. This is an instruction to you if you're a disciple of Jesus. This is what we were told. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Was it a bargain? Watch your answer carefully. Did God forgive you at a discount? Was his forgiveness a bargain extended to you? No, it was a gift. It was born entirely at his expense. We can see that much in the parable. When this king realizes he has, his servant has lost billions of dollars and sends that man out, the king absorbs the cost. 
That's the point of the gospel. People seek in vain through their own moral self-improvements or by following countless religious traditions or self-invented spiritual practices. They seek in vain to repay God, and we can't. That was extended by the mercy of the, of the king alone. So, the pivot is, since you have been so greatly forgiven, put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted toward one another. Forgive one another. And here's the measure and the model of your forgiveness. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus taught this all along. He taught it in the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you've ever noticed. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught His disciples a model prayer. A prayer that can be safely and biblically repeated word for word, or a, wor a, a prayer that can be taken as a frame and you can find in its ideas and its themes a, a, a frame to hang all of your present day needs and requests to God. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Don't miss this. As we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the end of the Lord's prayer. Agreed? I don't know if you ever noticed, as soon as he taught the entirety of the prayer, he circled back to one specific element in it and taught something about it. There's only one part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus returned to in order to teach it. There's a writer attached to the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh, Forgiveness matters that much. It cannot be purchased. It cannot be earned. It is freely given by God. And people who have been forgiven in this way should be as lavish and generous with their forgiveness as God was in giving them their own. A few very practical ideas about this before we're done. Your willingness to forgive others is a sure sign of your spiritual maturity. Your willingness, your readiness to run toward the other who has given offense and extend your forgiveness to him or to her is a sure indicator of how spiritually mature you actually are. Anybody can talk about this stuff. Believe me, I'm a pastor. Pastors know that better than anybody. Anybody can talk about it. It's the living it out that matters. Saying the right words, even confessing the creeds, anyone can do that. A parrot can do that. You know who often confesses all the right things to me when I'm in certain environments? Drunks. Every once in a while, I'm at some gathering where someone has a little bit too much and they become transformed from the beginning of the evening until they've had too much alcohol into a tender-hearted Christian. Pastor, I just want to tell you, you're amazing. Your teachings matter to me so much. I just feel so close to God. And I'm like, Who are you? Are you okay? I've never heard this. Alcohol is creating an emotional response that is not real because when they sober up, I never hear that language again. 
It's not coming from the heart. It's not genuine conviction. My point in telling you that is to simply do not put stock so much into what you say you believe. Your actual belief in Jesus is shown by your willingness to obey Jesus. Not to repeat his teaching, but to actually put it into practice. Your willingness to forgive other people is a sure sign of how emotionally, spiritually mature you actually are. A simple marriage tip was given to me years ago regarding reconciling with my spouse. The rule was this, when we're at odds and we know it, we've offended each other and we're each in our corner, who makes the first move toward forgiveness? And the rule I was given is, whoever the most spiritually mature person is should make the first move. Pretty good rule. You think you're the spiritual leader? Go over to her. Tell her you're wrong. Tell her even if she's wrong, you're so grateful that you're willing to hear how she messed up. And from your heart, you will forgive her. The teaching of Jesus, that's a practical rule for marriage. The most spirit, and in all relationships, the most spiritually mature person should make the first move. The teaching of Jesus is actually more comprehensive than that. He says, if you're really more my disciple, you should be moving toward each other. You should be taking the words out of each other's mouth as you seek forgiveness from the other person. Here's another practical application of this simple parable with one idea. The people greatly forgiven should be the greatest forgivers. If you're not forgiving, one of two things is happening. You're either hindering your relationship with God, or you really don't know Him at all. That's the punch in the parable. Earlier in Matthew 18, as Jesus explained how Christians were to reconcile with one another, he says, when all reconciliation fails, when the person will not be reconciled in spite of the intervention of the whole church, the entire Christian community has tried to bring this person back in love, consider him a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, he's told you three times, I don't know God at all. So at a minimum, if you have an unforgiving spirit, if you hold resentment and grudges toward other people, at a minimum, you're hurting your relationship with God, you're straining and clouding your relationship with God, and Jesus would warn you that it may be evidence that your heart has not actually been touched by the grace of God at all. That's the shock in the parable. The man who had had literally his whole life forgiven should have been so moved by the king's kindness that, of course, he could extend a little kindness of his own, but he couldn't. And the king said, bring him back, put him in prison, and the Greek is actually really, really strong. It says, deliver him over to the torturers. In other words, jail with at least occasional specific physical torture until he learns his lesson. Why does Jesus paint his parable in these larger-than-life colors and these stark contrasts? Because he wants those for whom he died and those whom he forgave to be grow into and be as lavish in their forgiveness toward each other as he was first with us. To make this very practical, let me invite you into three simple steps to put this into practice. First, ask yourself sincerely this question right now. 
do you have any bitterness or lingering resentment toward anyone? If you're sitting beside them, maybe don't write their name. (laughs) But seriously, search your heart and ask yourself, am I resentful toward another? Second, once you've identified those people with whom it's always tense, with whom there's always a trace of a grudge, In prayer, you've thought about them, now talk to God. In prayer, consider how much you have been forgiven and release those people to God. When I sent out the church-wide email this week, warning and announcing that today we would deal with forgiveness, I received a wonderful testimony. Godly woman in our church whose husband behaved terribly and died with no reconciliation. She told me very candidly about her process of continually turning him and her life over to God until one day she realized she was free. It took time. It took a process. But what makes it possible for you to forgive anyone is that you have been forgiven everything by God at his own expense, at the expense of the life of his son, Jesus Christ. The most striking example I know of this is by a woman who grew up in Holland, lived and eventually died here in Orange County. Her name's Corrie Ten Boom. And the Ten Boom family during World War II and the beginning of the Nazi Holocaust took Jews into their home in the Netherlands gave them refuge, but were eventually discovered, and Corey and her beloved sister Betsy were sent to a concentration camp, Ravensbrück, where Betsy died just a few days before Corey was released on December 31st, 1944. Here's a portion of Corey Ten Boom's testimony. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way toward, forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. 
Betsy had died in that place, could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That's Christian forgiveness, extended from one disciple to another. But Corey teaches us well, it's a process. It's an act of the will in obedience to Jesus. So consider who you still resent to whom you have denied forgiveness. Consider and take seriously what it's telling you about yourself. That the grace of God leaves you unmoved. That you're willing to welcome His forgiveness, but also willing to deny other people your own. And that can only mean one of two things. That you've put God away, that you are straining your relationship with Him, or that His grace, which you confess with your lips, has not really reached your heart and has not changed you and saved you truly so that you are able and willing to forgive others. Take that to heart. In prayer, remember, Christian, how much you have been forgiven and turn those people over to God. Some of them may not even be alive to seek your forgiveness. Entrust them to God, the righteous judge who will always do what is right. And number three, do this as often as necessary until they are truly forgiven and you are truly free. This is what it looks like to live as a a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Let's close our service by taking Jesus at His word and trying to put what He's told us into practice. Could I ask you to bow your head so we can pray together? First question. Have you confessed your own sins to God and asked Him for His own mercy? Are you sure of it? Are you sure that God has forgiven you? If you're not If you've been trying to repay him yourself, let me assure you from the entire teaching of the Bible, specifically the words of Jesus in this parable, you have a debt you cannot repay. The only way it can be forgiven is for you to trust the mercy of God in Christ dying for your sins. If you're not sure that that's already yours, reach out to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him. Ask him for mercy the way the man in the parable did. And He will forgive you. He's a faithful, merciful God who takes the cost 
unto himself pays the expense for you. It's not a bargain, it's a gift. If you do that this morning, find a card in the seat back near you and let us know, please. We'd love to pray for you, help you grow in your faith in Christ, help you understand more fully the forgiveness Jesus could well grant you today. And Christian, are there names and faces that still bring up resentment, irritation, bitterness, anger, wrath, slander? Those things that Paul said should be put away. Are you loving and tender-hearted toward all your fellow believers? Does forgiveness flow as readily from you as it did from Christ? If not, I'm going to be quiet for a moment and let you talk to the Lord about that. Tell Him that you're taking Him seriously. You intend to forgive others the way He forgave you. Jesus, I know that there will be hard questions and hard decisions made in this moment and maybe in days and weeks to come. Give us your grace. Give us your power. Give us your own life and attitude so that we may love and forgive others freely and lovingly as you first forgave us. I pray this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint says, amen. Folks, could I ask you to stand with me for just a moment? Anytime I touch upon the topic of forgiveness, the questions come. I've already received and answered one via email from the first service to this one. The devil, as they say, is in the details. If you don't know how to put the teaching of Jesus into practice because of your specific circumstances, this parable shows us true north. It shows us the truth. Great people greatly forgiven should be great forgivers themselves. If you don't know how to do that, if you can't get there, if the abuse, if the neglect, if the pain, if the anger was so great, it's just unimaginable to you, you're in a safe place. A church is a community of people forgiven by God. We really do care about you. We want you to walk in Jesus' way. So I welcome all of those questions. I even welcome the objections. The only times in my pastoral ministry I've been mocked and cursed and threatened is when I simply explained or even read what Jesus said. Sometimes it infuriates people because they have no intention of putting into practice what Jesus said. If you do, and you need help, you need encouragement, you need prayer, you need love, support, understanding, that's why we're here. Feel free to reach out to me. I'll be rocketing toward the porch. If it's your first time here, I'd love to meet you this morning. We're out of our regular series with Christmas approaching. We will return soon to our trademark, which is preaching through books of the Bible. For the next two weeks, I want to talk to you about raising Christ-like kids in this toxic culture that our nation has produced. That's next Sunday and the following Sunday. I'm adapting a talk I gave to a small group of moms. It eventually struck me, I'm not very bright, that anything worth saying to a small group of moms is saying to a whole church so that we can parent and grandparent faithfully as Jesus expects us to do our precious children who matter so much to him and obviously so much to us. So I encourage you to join us again this Sunday, this coming Sunday, and the Sunday after that while we talk about parenting kids in a toxic culture.